Welcome to episode 21 of the Gate 7 International Podcast, your official English source for all things Hassan. Big player. What a player he is. And also Olympiakos FC and Greek football. My name is Peter Thompson. I am very excited for this podcast today. This is our first time recording since Wednesday's massive, massive victory. I'm here with Adi Bulubasis and Lambros Sirmos. All three of us are back together. And we are also here with a very special guest, Theo Buras. Theo, thank you so much for joining. How are you doing today? Uh, it's my pleasure, guys. Uh, hell of a podcast you guys have. And uh, thank you for inviting me on. I'm doing great. Awesome. Awesome. Yeah, we really appreciate it. And uh, we're looking forward to getting into it. We've got some post-game analysis for Marseille and then also some pre-game analysis for Porto next week. Before we get into that, we do have a few announcements to make. Our next midweek series will be a day later than usual, but we will be joined with Antonios from Hellas Football, and we will be discussing the current situation at Panathinaikos, the rivalry, as well as some Europa League and Champions League fixtures that will have been played by then. You can follow Antonios on Twitter at Pyrus7019. On Sunday, November 1st, we have an absolutely enormous special guest coming for you all. This is a huge one. It's so big, we cannot reveal it yet. We will continue teasing on social media as well as in upcoming episodes. Follow us on social media at Gate7INTL if you want to know more. After that, on Wednesday, November 4th, we will be joined by a correspondent from the new Pauk Talk podcast, where we'll be looking at their transfer window as well as their Europa League fixtures. Following that, our last mystery guest, or sorry, our last special guest will be Bob Beans. No mystery there because we've had him on before. He'll be joining us for the second time on November 8th, where we'll continue to talk about Olympiakos in both Europe and in Greece. Don't forget to visit his website, thridosworld.com, for more English articles and information about the club. And lastly, thank you again to our sponsor, Piraeus International Incorporated. Piraeus International has been importing and exporting cargo for companies and individuals for over 40 years. They can assist you in importing olive oil, marble, or any other goodies from Greece. They can also assist in exporting, whether you have one box or a full household of items that need to be sent over. Check them out at PiraeusINTL.com and give them a call at 410-675-4696. And some quick news updates before we get into anything big. Adi, you have ordered a Hassan jersey. It is on its way. It'll be in your hands hopefully very soon. Now, I believe there may have been some, uh, some confusion as far as getting a custom jersey with Hassan number nine on it. I'm sure that's a hotly requested kit after Wednesday's result, but I think you deserve it. We saw you writing down the phrase, I will not doubt Hassan many, many times on paper. Adi, have you learned your lesson? Listen, I got laughed at when I made an international call to the Red Store and I asked for Hassan's name. I'm just going to tell all of you that, okay? And I'm just going to leave it there. <laughs> that is legendary. That after, is legendary. After the, after, Peter, after the Pazianina Pas game, I, I think everyone was ordering their Hassan jersey. It must have been on back order. That's why it was so hard to get it off the internet. <laughs> <laughs> that must have been it. That must have been it, surely. But we will continue to update you on that situation, and we will have 
pictures on social media on Twitter and Instagram when Adi has the Hassan jersey in his hands. Additionally, some early transfer news. Uh, Al Nasser have offered $7 million for Fortunis with $3 million per year wages or €3 million Euro per year wages, sorry. The club emphatically said no, which is good because we love Fortunis and we want him to stay. Inter-Miami of the MLS, of course owned by David Beckham, have made a $3 million offer for Maxi Lovera. Olympiacos said no, we will go as low as $8 million. So... They obviously value the player. Maybe David Beckham was watching Olympiacos versus Atromitos and saw some things that he liked. I'm sure that's how he spends his weekends, watching Greek Super League football uh, with Olympiacos. <laughs> and that's an interesting one to keep an eye out for, Maxi Lovera. But we hope he sticks around because he's a good player with some potential. Additionally, Sport24 have confirmed that Mari Camara is out for the Porto game. Not really much of a surprise, given that it seems he's positive for coronavirus, but... Bruma is apparently going to be in the squad. So there's a chance that we could see him. And obviously it seems like a lot of the newer players are beginning to get closer and closer to making their debut. Obviously, Vinagre came on for like a minute or two at the end of the Marseille game as well. And one last bit of news that's exciting for folks outside of Europe. Nova Sports have expanded their TV package to apparently the entire world. And they are offering global support through their nettvplus.gr, as well as their site. Now, Adi, I think you have some more information on this because it's really exciting for Americans, Australians alike who want to watch Greek football. Absolutely. So there was a little bit of confusion because at the same time we were getting news that Nova Sports was offering their global packages. We also were seeing a completely separate separate product called NetTV+. Plus. Uh, and nettvplus.gr is going to be also a global service that's going to be broadcasting Nova Sports World um, on mobile devices, smart devices. You can put it on your TV. Each subscription that you do can support up to six devices. You can choose either $16 a month or $111 for the year prepaid. And then uh, you, you get the same thing, but it's prorated. Now, they are two different services. You can go online and get the Nova Sports package, which is only for your computer, and it's for on-demand on demand only. Or you can do the nettvplus.gr, which is that their package, which you'll have access to on their smart, your smart devices, your smart TVs, things like that. So if you do the Nova Sports online only, on-demand service, it's, I think, 80 euros a year. Is that correct, Lambro? Yeah, that's the one that I have. I've been using. Most people here in Europe actually use. And just to give you guys an update on it, usually the quality was like 480p, not the greatest. Well, magically, I turned on the Ike game this, uh, this evening. Perfect 1080p HD. I don't know what they've done, but it's top. It cost me around, yeah, 85 euros, I want to say. And I can watch all the games live. And I also get on demand. I can watch games. And yeah, that's not on phone or TV, uh, smart TV. So just a heads up. If you use your computer, I think it's probably the way to go. Now for nettvplus.gr, I will be getting that. I'm going to be starting that trial later tonight. So I will be tweeting out kind of how it is, uh, watching some of the recorded games, seeing how it is. So I'll get more information out to everybody as soon as we can later uh, once we finish recording this episode. Yeah, certainly very exciting. And 
with that, we want to get to something that a lot of people have been asking for on social media, and we hope that you'll enjoy, is a little bit of a mailbag. Now, obviously, we are more than welcome to answer any questions that people ask us on social media, whether it's Twitter, Instagram, Reddit, Facebook, whatever you'd like, but we'd gotten a special influx of questions today, and so we figured that it would be a great time to offer a little mailbag and answer some of your questions. Now, the first question that we got was from George, who you can follow on Twitter at Gate7MTL. He was asking about the budgets of teams from our last 10 years of Champions League group campaigns. So we took a look into this and we found the budgets for the last few years. Um, obviously, we have this year, we have the previous season, our group with Spurs and Bayern, the year before that, which was Europa League, and then the season before that when uh, we were given a very tough group with Barcelona, Juventus, and Sporting. So looking at this year, Manchester City obviously have a massive, massive budget of €179,630,000, I think that is. Or maybe no, it's, it's, it's oh, U.S. dollars. Oh, it, it is, is U.S. dollars. For U.S. Okay. dollars. Yep. So $179 million. Uh, Porto and Marseille bought smaller budget, but with 12.65 and 14.38 million dollars, respectively. Olympiacos on 8.58 million. So, of the four teams in our group, we have the smallest budget, and we have just gone and beat a Marseille team that has almost twice the amount of money to spend on players as we do. Um, so, that's pretty impressive, that I would say. Obviously, it was only a 1 0 victory, but we'll get into why. I think it was pretty impressive in a bit. Yeah, and remember, this is with COVID too. So everybody's budgets were a little bit deflated because of that. Manchester City, of course, don't seem to count. Um, you know, they skirted the financial fair play rules, it seems. And they still have their billionaire owner dumping money in there. So there's no surprise. Um, the Now, last season, of course... You know, we had Bayern and Tottenham. Both are teams that are valued above 900 million euros. Those are uh, almost billion euro market valuations for those clubs. They each spent over $150 million. Again, this is U.S. Um, everything we found was adjusted for in U.S. dollars. Um, we considered trying to convert into euros, but it didn't really make sense. So, again, Tottenham spent $163.5 million. Bayern spent $153.5 million just in that window red star was 7.65 and we spent just about 20 million dollars now the season before which was martinez's first season with olibiakos if you all remember we were in europa league we competed against real betis milan and dudelange uh, milan that summer had a 206 and a half million dollar budget and we beat them out for second place in the group that year real betis not quite as large 42 0.35 million dollars while we spent 18.3 million Dudelange literally had a transfer budget of zero dollars and zero cents they bought no one they only brought in free transfers and loans now the season before which was our disaster year uh with the albanian coach beznik hazi we played in a group with barcelona juventus and sporting we were made fun of that year by every other team in Greece, Balk, Ayk, Panathinaikos, because I believe we only had one draw. It was one draw and five losses that year. Not a good year for us. But just hearing the sound, the three names of the teams we played against, you have an idea about how much bigger those clubs were. Well, here's how much those clubs spent the summer before that season. 
Barcelona spent $415.5 million in the transfer window that summer before they played against us. Juventus spent almost $200 million in their transfer window. Sporting Lisbon, smaller Portuguese club, still spent 52, almost $53 million in the transfer window. We spent 24, which is one of the higher transfer budgets we've had in our club's history. That was the season, if you guys remember, we bought Bjorn Engels. It was like a $9 million transfer. So that was about half of that. But even with a record year in terms of transfer money spent for our club, we still were less than half of what sporting spent. So that year, it was no surprise. We were coming in fourth. It would have been a dream if we even finished third. And it was a bad year. As you know, Hazi had terrible, terrible, terrible choices in what he wanted for his team. He seemed to only go for six foot four, six foot three players uh, that were physical with no ball skill. So hopefully, George, that helps you when you argue with your friends again. Uh, we were indeed in every single year except for, you know, last year against Red Star and then uh, the year we played against Duda Lounge. We were always the minnow of the group, the team that spent the least, the smallest cap club. Yeah, it gives you perspective as well as to just what we're working with when we're going up against these massive sides and why I'm not super concerned with a loss to Manchester City because it's just like, what can you do when they have all that money to spend even in a pandemic? Now, getting on to more questions, uh, somebody from Reddit, user FKN Pitsy, I think is how that's said, asks, how did you come to love this amazing club? Also, have you been to any games? Do you have a favorite experience? So I guess I'll start. Uh, I came to love this amazing club through Lambro, I would say mostly, uh, as we became good friends at university. And obviously, I am not Greek at all, uh, but Lambro obviously has been an Olympiakos fan for much longer than I have, and we got to know each other through enjoying the games. I have not been to Greece. I've not been to the stadium. So my favorite memories are from watching Hassan and El Arabi bang in clutch goals from my couch, but it's still wonderful memories of, of watching the team play. And I'm sure Lambro and Adi, and I'm sure Theo as well, uh, might have some other more interesting stories about favorite memories of the team yeah to just to build off peter uh, we watched a few games together i think but the first one i think you came over was actually a derby against panathinaikos and i i remember it clearly we dominated the game but panathinaikos scored some wonder goal i think it was katze, katze. it was the albanian guy i think yep it was some albanian guy he scored a wonder goal and it was like the 96th minute and Cissé scored a yep. bullet header. Cissé, like best minute striker on the team scored. that season. <laughs> yes, he went up at striker, scored that amazing goal. And the the fans just went crazy. And like Peter was going crazy. We were going crazy. And it was just like a Panathinaikos, Olympiakos game, you know, like just so emotional. Like, thank God we scored. Yeah. So we were going crazy. And jumping off this question, God, this made me like so excited to think about some of the old memories. So... I grew up in Hawaii, which is massive time difference from Greece. So it was so hard to find domestic games on TV. So I usually only watched European games. But what really drew me in, I guess, more to domestic games was not so long ago, maybe five years ago, I went to Olympiagos Panathinaikos at Kariskaki. It was the year where Marcus Berg scored in the third net. And the tension in the stadium is something I still can remember. Like everyone was so tight and it was so 
Like our hearts were all beating. We could feel it. And Marcus Berg celebrating in front of us was just so disastrous. We came back. We scored a goal in like the 33rd minute with Cambiaso. And there was like an offside controversy and everyone was going crazy. And like it was such a hot atmosphere. Everyone yelling on their feet. It was so great. And then we came back. Um, uh, Manuel da Costa, legendary Olympiacos player, one of the oh, worst God. players I've ever seen in the club, scored a bullet header to take the lead at 2-1. And I was like hugging random people, just kissing <laughs> random people on the cheek, just like absolute madness. Flares were going off. You couldn't see anything. And then Brownie Day, who I was joking with my cousin earlier, scored a game winner or not a game winner to go 3-1 up. And it was just so exciting. The players olayed all the fans at the end. And like we were just singing and so happy. And I think that's where like I was like, I will love this club forever. It was one of those moments where, the energy in the stadium is just something I could never put into words. Olympiacos Panathinaikos is just something else being there in the stadium as well. I think anyone would fall in love with the club. I've been to some other games. Most recently, I was there during the Champions League qualifiers. I was at both the Basakshir game and the Krasnodar game. But that Olympiacos Panathinaikos game sucked me in so much. I just couldn't stop following the club after that. I fell in love, I think, being at the stadium. Theo, how about you? Funny you guys mentioned that uh, 3-1 game against Panathinaikos. Um, that day was actually my uh, daughter's gender reveal party. So we had people over to find out what the sex was going to be. And my dad and, my, and I, we looked at my wife and we said, listen, Joanna, nothing is happening until 4 p.m. local time because there's an Panathinaikos <laughs> game. So everyone's going to have to wait. So we had like 40 people watching the game and nobody cared about Greek soccer besides me and my dad. But the truth is, it's always been that way. My father was the one that um, he grew up in, uh, in Piraeus. Went to a ton of games. Then I moved here to Canada and really gave me that uh, that love for the team. So every Sunday we'd get together. Since I was a young kid, before we wouldn't catch the games here, he'd bring me to these like sleazy-looking bars where they would catch the, the soccer games because it was the only way to watch them. But, you know, we went to a couple of games together at Karaiskaki and the atmosphere, again, is like you guys mentioned. It's, it's out of this world. You fall in love right away. I've never been to a derby, unfortunately, but a couple of uh, Champions League qualifiers, and it was uh, a lot of fun. The atmosphere is, uh, is like no other. Uh, it's 100% true, 100% true. For me, my family has always been involved with the port in Greece. So, you know, we've always felt that we had a connection. So Olympiakos was obviously, my Bapu was an Olympiakos fan. He always felt connected to the port. So when I was younger, I used to watch when he would be watching, especially when we'd go visit in Greece. Um, I mean, there's too many experiences for me to really pick one, but one memorable experience is I remember when we were watching the Atletico Madrid game uh, that season with Michel when he was the coach. And Atletico Madrid had just lost in the finals to Real Madrid that previous summer. Everyone was worried because it was such a tough group. And we go out in that first game and we were in Spain, uh, I believe. Oh, no, we were in Karaskaki, uh, actually, I think. And we win, uh, you know, we come out and win that game one nothing, And my heart was pounding. I couldn't focus. I couldn't do anything. I was at work that day. I couldn't focus on work the rest of the day. That day will always, I will remember that for the rest of my life. I have to jump in. That was one of my favorite Olympiacos memories as well, because, you know, when we play in Europe, a lot of people see us for the first time and we were going against the runners up in the Champions League. Yeah. And I remember when Arthur Mazuaku just roped that ball right in the corner and Oh my God, the joy and jubilation. And then Mitroglu turned his man and slotted that one in. Like, yeah. 
that was one of like I, I think every we joke on this podcast about me throw glue and like coming back but I always loved that man and when he scored that goal like I always loved me throw glue you know for the goals he scored for us and especially that one you know just send us into jubilation and giving us hope you know I always talk about hope we have hope he gave us hope that night and it was just so fantastic I think the best memories for Olympiacos are for me obviously I've never been to the stadium my favorite games are just seeing us play well in Europe and knowing that people across the world are watching and seeing like wow this is a big club like I didn't realize and and just like when we drew Spurs last year I think it put a lot of people on to like this team is legit of course I think the the second game that Lamro and I watched together was Olympiakos Pauk when Vukovic had that dreadful own goal (laughs) we lost one nil that's like my other like early memory of watching the club with Lamro like a couple years ago (laughs) so that's another one that like I can't forget unfortunately but my god that was uh that was poor uh i'm sure we could talk about best memories of the club forever i do want to make sure we get on to the other mailbag questions so the next one that we have is who would be our top three players to make a difference for the season now obviously it's a young season but i think we could probably all go around and say three names that we think are the most important players for the club i think i'm going to start and the first one that comes to my mind is Matthew valbuena We'll talk mm-hmm. more about why he is an absolute legend and a massive player for this club when we get into the Marseille game. I'm going to say Jose Sa, just because he gives us so much confidence at the back. He's an incredible goalkeeper. He also made a very big save in the Marseille game. And for my third player, I'm going to say El Arabi, just because when he's banging in goals at striker, uh, it's just so important to the team. But I think you could say a lot of different people for that third difference maker. I mean, Fortunis comes up just because of the way he changes the way we play when he comes on, uh, and even some of the midfielders as well. But want to hear what everyone else has to say for this one. Nambro, what are your thoughts? Yeah, Peter, you, your first choice right out of my mouth. This is a player we don't talk about a lot. I'm so he's world class. He he's he's better than Roberto. I know like a lot of Olympiacos fans love Roberto. Jose Sa is world class, and the fact that he stayed at this club through the summer is amazing. He's number one. He stays healthy. It's everything. Another player who, I guess, is talked about more is Ba. I think Ba becoming that partner next to Semedo is huge, and I think Ba is going to become a world class player. I he has everything. He's a little rash, but I think he has all the skills, and I think big clubs are always trying to find the next star central defender because they're hard to find, you know? So I think this is a year of Bob. He can stay healthy. And then finally an attack. Hmm. Yeah, I, I, I think it's difficult. I, I, especially with the new signings not playing yet, but I think if he does anything, maybe Bruma, because we, we kept talking, we need that winger. We need that winger. Masuras and Angelovic played pretty good against Marseille, but I think Bruma, if he plays to the level that he could, he could be the difference maker. Theo, how about you? Listen, guys, I know he wasn't there this past week, but uh, Madi Kamara, for me, has been a rock for this team. Uh, mm-hmm. Phenomenal yeah. player. He links up, whether he uh, he helps uh, you know in the back end, he scores goals, distributes the balls, uh, nonstop running around, which cuts passing lanes for the other team. And, you know, it was great to get the win without him. But for me, he's one of the key players. And another guy that I was very surprised was able to, to stick around this past summer and, uh, and still be with us, which is great. Uh, I know he gets a lot of slack sometimes, but Ruben Sabero for me is is the quarterback of the defensive line, uh, to use an American term. He leads that back end. He's calm, sometimes a little too calm, but he's he's calm and he <laughs> has that presence where 
not since Olaf Melberg have I seen a, a center back who's really taken uh, that defensive line and and made it his. Uh, and, and look, again, El Arabi up front, if he continues to have a, a fantastic year. But the beauty about this team is that there's so many key parts and so many guys that have to work together. And uh, you can you can really name six, seven really key players. Uh, and, and that's my opinion. Uh, you're 100% right. It's so difficult for me to think of which three players, you know. So for me, it's just the three players I can think of that when they are on the field, our team changes dynamically. Obviously, the first one, Peter already mentioned it's Valbuena. Valbuena is by far and away our most important offensive piece. He leads the team in terms of all creative metrics, uh, opportunities created, key passes, shot assists. He leads the team in all of that. He is one of our most important pieces, if not the most important piece. Then number two for me is I'm going to also go with Usain Uba. Usain Uba this season, in terms of defensive metrics, is the best that we have in every aspect. He beats out Ruben Semedo in defensive duels, aerial duels, slides, loose balls. They're about the same on recoveries, more interceptions, literally everything. Usain Uba is the rock. Ruben Semedo, 100% is the quarterback there. He's the better guy on the ball, and he is... Right now, definitely, I will say a higher tier, higher echelon player than Usain Uba is. But the work rate that Ba has, I think it's only a matter of time before Ba gets into that top tier as well. Just has to work on his technical skill a little bit, and I think he can be right up in there. And then the third for me, you know, El Arabi is super important. I can't not say that. But we've seen every time Fortunis has been subbed onto the pitch, he makes an immediate impact. As soon as he's on there, every single game when he gets subbed on as a super sub, it's goal scoring opportunities. And he's second in the team, even though he doesn't start as much. He's only had two starts, but he is the second in the team in terms of creative opportunities, shot assists, key passes. He's the second behind Valbuena in that respect. So those are going to be my three that I end up going with uh, Valbuena, Ba, and Fortunis. Yeah, we could say so many players. I think this team has so many difference makers. It's really hard to pick only three, but even then, it seems like we're pretty generally on the same page there. A couple more mailbag questions, one that's pretty quick. Somebody asked, what statistical software do we use for the analytics that we deliver here on the podcast? That was actually a direct message on Facebook, so feel free to message us on Facebook. You can just search Gate 7 International Podcast, and you should find our page. To answer that question, pretty much all the statistics we use come from either Scout or StatsBomb. Uh, yeah. Both give us a lot of great analytics. Scout gives some awesome match reports, and we can use them for some film as well if we want to watch some clips of the games if we've missed them. A lot of really great stuff from both of those sources. So just to let everyone know, you can find all of our links, where our podcast is, our social medias, et cetera, on a link tree. The link tree is Gate 7 International Podcast. You can find the link on our Twitter. We'll also get it up on Facebook and other platforms. We may just drop it in the description of the podcast as well to help you guys find our socials and where the podcasts are playing. And just to be clear as well, uh, even though we do get our data from those platforms, StatsBomb, Scout, uh, Football Reference, which technically is StatsBomb anyway, all the data that we get when we do some of the comparisons, side-by-side -side comparisons, and we contextualize that data, that's all done manually. Old school, spreadsheets, pivot tables. That's how we're finding what data is significant with certain players, how we're comparing performances from previous seasons to now. Unfortunately, those platforms don't do it for you. You have to do it yourself. So doing all of this, it does take a lot of time. 
But we do that because we want to offer that analytical portion, that that analytical viewpoint of these games. And when Adi says we do that, he means he does that. <laughs> so we are very <laughs> grateful, uh, Adi, that you take the time to do that. And it's very valuable for the podcast. So keep it up. And one last question that actually sort of relates to the previous question that we had about the difference makers. Someone asked, how do you feel about our Portuguese players? Obviously, with Pedro Martins as our manager, we have a big Portuguese contingent, including a handful of new Portuguese players coming in. And we have been asked, who is our favorite Portuguese player? Now, I think it's six in the team now. We've got Sa, we've got Semedo, we've got Bruma, we've got Ruben Vinagre, we've got Tiago Silva, who I believe is Portuguese, and I'm forgetting one, I think. I think there's Pepe. Pepe, Pepe, that's yeah. the one, that's the one, There's yeah. Six. Hasn't played yet, so that's why I forgot him. But yes, Pepe Rodriguez is hopefully going to be a big player for us. My favorite, personally, is Sa. Um, I already said I think he's one of our top difference makers. He is just an amazing goalkeeper. I think we're incredibly lucky. Obviously, it was partially, I think, because he got injured, but we're incredibly lucky to keep him on for another season here. It seemed like he might have been ready to go, but he's a top goalkeeper. Like, when he's in form, he really is up there with the best. Uh, I think... He could play on a whole lot of big teams if we really wanted to. And he just gives us so much confidence at the back. I hope that he doesn't get hurt again because we'll need him for these big games. So that's my pick for favorite Portuguese player. Yeah, well, Peter, I completely agree. I think uh, Sa is, has been phenomenal. And with that comparison with Roberto, Roberto used to have these outstanding games, but he would often have some gaffes. And, and you would see that. I remember the game against Anderlecht where we lost in the Europa yep. League round of 32. Uh, he was at fault for, for at least two of the three goals scored in that aggregate. Uh, whereas what you see is what you get. He's a lot more stable, consistent. Ultimately, it's somebody we need in the back. And again, very lucky that we still have him. Roberto got a really bad rep at West Ham as well, with Premier League fans getting familiar with him. He wasn't exactly the most popular player over there, and I think it's just because he can make the big saves, but he can also make some really, really ugly-looking mistakes. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, I agree completely. And I would have to say my favorite Portuguese player has to be Kafu. But, oh, wait, oh he's gone. No, nope, not Kafu. <laughs> no, just joking. Uh, of course, it's it's going to be Sa. For me, he's he's class. I, I love Jose Sa. But second, Kafu, always in our hearts, the legend. <laughs> scored a goal against Panathinaikos. Massive player. That's all. He's top. He hasn't even made the bench once for Nottingham Forest. I, I don't know how that happens, but legendary player. Yep, that's it. No, for me, it'll also be, it'll be Jose Sa, 100%. Uh, I love, I love Ruben Semedo, but, uh, well, and I'm liking him more now. I think he's more focused now that the transfer window is over, but it's going to be Jose Sa. He's my favorite, 100%. Yeah. Also, also did we announce that he has re-signed yeah, yeah, a yeah. new contract? Yep. We did so not announce that. We missed that, yes. and I was just we about to bring that. it up, but yes. So 1.2 million euros he's taking a year for four years that's the Benfica money he was looking after and yep. he's playing for a Champions League team good for him you know <laughs> I'm happy he's here I'm happy he's getting good money because honestly he deserves it and hopefully his mind is back in the game because I think the transfer saga kind of took a toll on him I think he was thinking about a move moving his family blah 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 yeah and I mean this move is obviously nice I think Semedo gets what he wants now obviously it doesn't necessarily guarantee that he's going to be with us until 2024 but in the least, it's going to make him much more valuable with that contract, knowing that a team will get him and have him under contract for a bit longer. So, yeah, 
it's exactly what we did with Podense and it raised mm -hmm. his transfer value. So this is win-win for us. Either he stays long-term or we sell him for even more money. That's fine with me. That's a good point, yes. Nambro. And uh, with that, let's get into Olympiacos Marseille post-match. Before we start talking about that, though, Theo, we're going to obviously be asking you a lot of questions about the game. And I want to start by asking you more generally about your background. We talked a little bit already about how you got into Olympiacos, obviously living in Canada, but you also do a lot of great writing for Agona Sport. Now, how did you get into writing and how did you get that opportunity writing about your favorite club, Olympiacos? Well, thanks for the kind words. Um, I actually started with uh, Agona Sport in, in 2018. I'm the one that reached out to uh, Saranto Caperones, who uh, was running Agona Sport and still is for that matter. And uh, he told me, he said, send me some of your work. And, and that's what I did. Ultimately, it worked out. So I became the, the correspondent for, uh, for Olympiacos uh, every week. And I always loved writing since I was a kid. And again, it just, it just meshed well with, with a love for Olympiaco. It ended up being something that was a, a natural link. So ultimately, it was a lot of fun to do and uh, something I look forward to uh, doing in the future as well. Well, we hope that you keep pushing out content. You know, uh, we enjoy reading Thanks. your stuff always. And it's always great work. Now, let's get into the game. So for those who completely missed it, I hope you didn't because it was a fun one. 1-0 one against Marseille. Hassan late in the game at the death with a big header, easily putting it into the back of the net. Huge, huge play. Now, the scoreline is 1-0. I personally think Olympiacos pretty much dominated the game. Possession-wise, Olympiacos won possession, and I think overall they handled the game pretty well. Adi, I think you have some metrics about possession and stuff like that more generally. And then we will get into specific players who we thought played well. Obviously, I think most of the players for us played well, but some more than others that we'll highlight. Yeah, for the most part, I mean, we did dominate this game. Uh, I know we were joking to ourselves because we heard on a Marseille podcast, an English-speaking Marseille podcast, that thought it was an ugly game, that Olympiacos were terrible. And no, we this was handily dominated by us. That's how the game was. The general metrics, 54 to 46%. That's not a huge difference overall, but it is a difference. We, we did command possession. Marseille was actually able to maintain more possession towards the end of the first half and then the beginning of the second half. In both of those periods, the last, I'd say, 10, closer to 15 minutes of the first half, they were at 58% possession and 56% from the 45th to just about around the 60th minute. After that, it was complete dominance by Libyakos. Uh, both teams very accurate passing the ball, 86%, both teams. So not a lot of cheap losses in possession. In the first half, Marseille won the majority of the duels overall, including offensive and defensive. So uh, again, remember, duels are when somebody has the ball and then they are challenged or pressured when they have the ball. That's what constitutes a duel. So in those occasions, Marseille came out on the, the winning end, the receiving end, 53% uh, to our 41%. But then in the second half, it was us with the lion's share. And one thing I think is interesting about this game is the way that we lined up. If you look at the lineup before the game, you're going to say this is a 4-2-3-1. I think the club officially announced it as a 4-2-3-1 when they posted sort of the image. But when you watch the game, you'll realize that we were in a 4-4-2 for almost this entire game. I think when Fortunis came on, maybe the formation changed a bit. But mm -hmm. we obviously had Valbuena as the 10 in the theoretical 4-2-3-1, but he wasn't really doing that the whole time. And I noticed it personally, uh, even before we looked at the analytics, I noticed it most prevalently in defense when we were very much 
in a 4-4-2 with Valbuena and El Arabi up top. And it sort of reminds me of the way that a lot of English teams play, sort of that big man, little man combo. You also mm-hmm. see it, I think, in some Italian teams recently. You look at like Inter Milan with Lukaku and Martinez. But I thought that was sort of an interesting way to line up. And it shows you just how versatile Martins can be in sort of picking his teams and having a very free-flowing style, like not confined to a specific structure where a lot of the players are allowed to move into a lot of different positions. Yeah, and the cool thing about this was, well, I say cool, but it was a gamble, right? This was a huge gamble by Martins. So by playing a 4-4-2 and going with that big man, little man combo, let's kind of take a step back and think a little bit more philosophically when it comes to soccer, right? The 4-4-2, the general idea, and the reason it became one of the most used formations is that it's pretty balanced, right? You spread the field, you cover a lot of ground in terms of width of the field, which is a good thing. However, the downside is with the 4-4-2, you can have pockets of space. Now, most people say, okay, well, there's space in any, any formation. You always have to be careful of that. Well, a coach that exploited the 4-4-2 big time was Pep Guardiola with Barcelona. He exploited the space between the midfield and the defense. All those different pockets with his triangles mm-hmm. and his tiki-taka philosophy ruined 4-4-2 teams. So this was a huge gamble because it puts more of the onus on our midfield duo, our CM pairing, Vilan Bukalakis, to cover more ground and to really win that midfield battle. Part of that risk is that the person that's playing as the second striker or the small man, as the little man, as we would say, which was Valbuena, is that he can get sucked too far forward. And if that happens, then or with the case as it is with most teams, you can end up kind of having like an odd man situation where your two midfielders are being outnumbered by the other three, depending on what formation they're playing and getting crowded out of the midfield. So it was a gamble and it ended up succeeding specifically because of how Martins implemented the press. Now, once we go through the metrics, Theo, we really wanted to get your opinion on this because we tweeted out, uh, as you guys saw, a brand new metric that first started with stats bomb and kind of made its way in there called PPDA. PPDA is passes per defensive action. So that's passes allowed by the defensive team per action. Uh, in the first half, Olympiacos was allowing 12.4 passes per defensive action while Marseille allowed 16.7. So both teams were kind of sitting back a little bit on a hole. And then the second half, Olympiacos was stepping up the pace. They were only allowing 6.9 passes per defensive action, while Marseille was allowing almost 10. Now, if we break it down to individual points of the game, Marseille was pretty smooth in terms of their pressing intensity the entire game. They were slow in the beginning, but the rest of the game, it was pretty smooth. Nine, maybe 10 passes per defensive action, that was it. Olympiacos was changing. And when you see the graph and you see the metrics in terms of the times and when, how we were pressing... It was very consistent. Now, you see it much more clearly when you look at the time periods where we started to elevate our pressing tempo in the game. And every single time Marseille would switch the ball, and we had numbers, at least in the midfield or sort of on the opposite side, every time Marseille would switch the ball, Martins was immediately picking up the pressing tempo. There were times during this game, Olympiacos was only allowing two or three passes per defensive action. And towards the end of the game, prior to the goal, we were only allowing 2.3. 2.3 passes per defensive action. We were going for the throat. 
towards the end, especially. The only reason that this 4-4-2 was successful and that we didn't get really kind of carved out by guys like Payet and Talvin is because of the pressing intensity and the pressing philosophy that was implemented by Martins. Theo, we wanted to get your thoughts about the lineup and then the pressing strategy from Martins. Well, absolutely. But about, about the lineup, I think the first thing everybody did in the morning when we found out Matty Camara wasn't going to play is pull out their hair. And then to see that Mvila and Buchalakis had a fantastic game. And really, uh, all things considered, I thought these were two guys that were going to um, bump into each other in the sense that they're both passers. They're both not particularly very, very quick. They're both heavier bodies. But they played a very good game. But when you talk about a, a PPDA of 2.3, that's almost a number that you play against a like a Greek team, where they can't string a third pass together to play against us. That's a phenomenal number. And it's ridiculous in the sense that you do that against Marseille. And I think it speaks to the testament of how Martins has worked this team and has molded this team to be the way he wants it to be. And credit to the board for keeping him and allowing him to do that uh, for a third season now. Because ultimately, that's how you get to build a team that has continuity and that gets to put up uh, these kind of wins in Europe. Yeah, and just to comment on that, a Sport24 writer, I don't remember if it was Themis or maybe another one mentioned, Olympiacos nowadays is playing fantastic football in Europe. And it's not just Olympiacos scrapes a win, Olympiacos barely wins, parks the bus and wins. Olympiacos is playing its football in Europe in the Champions League. Like, this is impressive. Like, we need to take a step back and say Olympiacos was playing their game, dominating the game against a Champions League side like that. And it's not Red Star Belgrade. It's Marseille, a historic club with big players like Payet and Thauvin. And just jumping off one thing you mentioned about the pressing, one thing I thought when I saw the lineup and Coach Martins mentioned this at the end of the game, I thought he was going to tire them out. You know, Thauvin and Payet, I'm going to be a bit mean to them. They're not in great shape. Those are not top fit footballers Pae especially just could not run that man was out of shape I don't know what he's been doing I guess they didn't leave the league after coronavirus in March but he looked poor Thalvin too after starting off well just faded and I had a feeling that we had talent on the bench we had Hassan okay Hassan but we had we had uh, Fortunis we had Lovera we had creative players and that's exactly what happened. We brought on these creative players and we went for the jugular. Uh, Martin said something really interesting in his post-game press conference. I don't know if you guys saw this. He said, I could have taken the draw in the second half. He said, I think his exact words was, I risked everything, bringing on Fortunis and Hassan, and we went for it. And you know what? I'm so happy he did. Like, what What a game. Like, what, what an idea by Martins. And what what a status this club is that we play our own football in Europe. We tell teams how we play. You know what? It's just I, I can't I can't emphasize it enough. I'm just so happy with that. And that's where you notice that you've changed pedigree in Europe. Uh, maybe an Olympiacos team in 2005 against Marseille would have settled for that nil nil draw to kick off the Champions League season. But right now, this is a, a completely different team, and I really believe, guys, that we've attained the status now that we have never gotten before, in the sense. This has been a unique summer. You have your guys that haven't properly had a, a preseason training like they've had every other year. Yep. But you're still going for that jugular. You're still going for that victory because you want to start off on the right foot. And it's big. Not since that famous 3-2 Atletico game have we won to kick off a Champions League campaign. So you get those three points in the bag to start. Uh, more power to you. Absolutely. And again, this is what happens when you have a coach that has real cojones, not like the current national team coach that we have. You know, he, he says what's expected and he takes risk and then he doesn't shy away from that. If we had lost, he would have said, yeah, I took a risk and I did it. You know what I mean? 
this is what a real coach does. You know, now, uh, as we digress a little bit, let's kind of look at how the attacks were because credit to both Olympiacos and Marseille, the defenses were pretty solid. You know, Marseille, we knew going into this, Marseille's defense overall was pretty good, right? Their, their defensive scheme, it's Vias Boas, another Portuguese manager. They might not play pretty, but they're pretty good on the defensive end. And the metrics kind of show with that as well. Olympiacos only had a 19% positional attack efficiency. So that means that, only 19% of our attacks going towards Marseille when we were in possession ended up in shots. Specifically, six shots off of 32 attacks. That's pretty good for Marseille. They did well dissolving things uh, and kind of pushing them out. Now, Marseille, on the other hand, was pretty miserable. And again, this speaks to the effort from all of our guys, not just Ba and Semedo, but even Rafinha and Holebas. Guys, Holebas had one of the best defensive performances for our team since he's been back this year. Uh, we were all were expecting that to be the weak side, but he really stepped up. Uh, out of 23 positional attacks, they only had three looks on target, three shots off of 23 positional attacks. Uh, that's a 13% positional attack efficiency. If you guys remember from the midweek series, we commented on how Larissa was the second worst team in the Super League with an average positional attack efficiency of 16%. So 13% is really bad. Marseille's attack was pretty toothless. They really only had two attempts on target that were even remotely anything to speak of. Uh, so that's really good. Now, in terms of the points of attack, Olympiacos heavily emphasized attack on the wings. We brought up in the pre-match analysis... Marseille's vulnerability was on the wings. Those fullbacks were not that good. Defensively, they're not positioned very well. They're not superb on that end. But what they do very well, or what I should say the defense does have that is skillful, are their center backs. Uh, Shalea Ashar was, we, all, we knew from the beginning, he is their general back there. Great on the ball, great defensively. So we had to attack the vulnerabilities, which we really did. 19 attacks on the left side, 17 on the right side. We hardly attacked up the middle. Everything was on the wings. We generated a threat metric of 0.84 on the left, a threat metric of 0.24 on the right. So although we didn't do as much on the right, and the goal did come from the right side, we were much more threatening on that left side. So, Theo, we wanted to get your opinion on Olympiacos' attack. What did you think of it, as well as the defensive performance? defensively again uh, there were some concerns to start the season that you know the guys to to mesh again because you lose your two wing backs and you didn't just lose two wing backs that were uh, just any other wing backs uh, Olympiaco like you guys mentioned earlier doesn't have that that winger that's a dominant uh, dribbling winger that's going to score goals uh, mm -hmm. so we had a, a ton of our attack last year from Simika and El Abdelawi from the left and the right those overlaps the crosses they would generate yep. a lot of our offense Whereas this year with Rafinha, uh, Holebas, and eventually I do think Ruben Vinagre is going to be that, that starting left back if all goes well. Um, it, there's going to have to be that, that chemistry that's going to have to be built again. So I think they did a good job, you know, of trying to overlap a little bit. Holeba, like you mentioned, guys, had a, had a good game. Uh, probably his best one since coming back. But I do believe that, again, Valbuena was a catalyst, trying doing whatever he was able to possibly do. What Olympiaco did towards the end, we bring in Fortuny and Hassan, and you almost made that game a 2-4-4 system, whereas you had Rafinha and Joleba pressing so high, um, Fortuny and Valbuena playing in back of uh, Hassan and, and Larabi. So, Martins risked it all, and kudos to him because it paid off, but once again, it could have gone completely the other way, so it takes a, a coach, like you mentioned, that has uh, those cojones uh, that got that game and, and won the game ultimately for us to start off with those three points. 
Yeah, you mentioned Jolebas, and I think you were totally correct when you said this is the best that we've seen him play since he has made his return to the club. I think we were all sort of afraid that we might have to see Jose Jolebas starting in the Champions League game before. And immediately he made it clear in the first half that he must have just been saving it for today. Yeah. Uh, you know, and it, the funniest part for me was obviously watching this game from Canada, uh, listening to the British announcers pretty much act like it was expected for Jodebas to play this well. Uh, obviously, he's one of the few players that they were familiar with, given that he was just in England and, and he would make a, a really nice run down the pitch and throw in a cross. And they'd be like, oh, there's Jodebas. We know he can do that. And I'm, I'm sitting there like, you guys have not been watching against you know, Yanina and whatnot when he's been struggling to give, even get in that half of the pitch and attack. But he was great. I think he maybe quieted down a little bit in the second half. And he also was a lot better defensively and the metrics support that as well. A hundred percent. I mean, and the funny thing was, if you guys remember in uh, the pre-match episode that we had with Constantine and Mo, Mo is a journalist and he does some freelance journalism now, uh, covers a lot of Marseille, had that huge event he did in Shanghai for Marseille as well. They were expecting Holebas to be the weak point. That's what they were going for. And when that didn't turn out to be, it kind of ruined a lot of their game plan. Now, while we're kind of on the subject of the players, let's dive right into the player analysis. I mean, you know, we'll start with the goalkeeper, Jose Sa. Funny enough, when we looked at the metrics, he really didn't have to do much. I remember thinking in the game, I, I, I thought there were way more opportunities against us than there actually were. He only had to make two saves. Uh, one which was classified as a reflex save that that upfront the shot from Benedetto that was literally like right in front of him. Uh, it registered a 0.47, I think, uh, goal differential. And then he had another one that was further out. Nine crosses that came in on him, uh, claimed two, challenged three others, but only one shot came off against him, which was the Benedetto shot. Yeah, I mean, halfway through the game, I had written down in my notes that I hadn't seen much from him. And then immediately right out of the gate in the second half, he makes that huge, huge save, yeah. of course, when the game was still nil-nil. I'm sitting there like, oh, my God, thank the Lord for Sa. And then, you know, after that, he didn't really do that much either. But as we talked about, he just does what he's asked. There's mm -hmm. no fear of, like, he's going to take something that should not be a goal and mess it up and turn it into a goal. I mean, with the ball at his feet, he was good. Long balls, decently solid completion rate on those long passes. Nothing to worry about with Sa, and this is why I just think he's so important. Yeah, I want to jump in about the ball at his feet. I think that's the one area where he is not the strongest, or he wasn't the strongest. And yep. I think he's developed that a lot better, you know. He was. He seemed very confident to play it out to Ba or Semedo or even just cut it through to Mvia through the middle, like Benedetto would pressure, and instead of just kicking it long, he'd go straight through to either Bujalakis or Mvia, you know, I'm... He's just turning into a top-class keeper. You know, it's, again, what Adi mentioned, I my heart was in my throat, always is for huge games. But when you think about it, there was only the Pae free kick and the Benedetto chance. Like, that's yep. that's shocking. That's quite surprising. Didn't think it would be that little. I guess give credit to the fullbacks, give credit to Ba in the midfield for the work they did. I don't want to get too ahead of ourselves either, but can we talk about Ba? He was absolutely amazing in this game oh, yeah. yet again a guy who was in league two two years ago on a team that was getting relegated and now putting in absolute masterclass performances in the champions league unreal we have the metrics on him which are amazing we'll get into them later but 
just a couple moments, there was a, a really great tackle towards the end and a couple moments when he would come in and I think the the older, young, not the older, but the, the Ba of older teams, the younger Ba might have just cleared it out for a corner, but he came in and took the ball, turned it around and got it to another defender, did a really nice job. I think I remember one early in the second half when he did that. Excellent job from him. He's still not super strong with the ball. Uh, obviously, we talked about how Semedo is definitely the defender that we would rather have making those passes, but he's becoming more and more comfortable, and it's really encouraging to see that. Absolutely. And one of the first things uh, that I did right after the game was I tweeted this out. As soon as the data populated, uh, Ba had a 100% defensive dual win rate. And this isn't the first time this has happened, even this season. Against Yanina, it was like 99%. So maybe he didn't hit 100, but 100%. He won literally everything. Everything and anything around him. Benedetto couldn't do anything. Nobody could. If you were around Ba, that was it. He was the great wall. He was the iron curtain. Done. Two interceptions, eight recoveries, seven clearances. He completed 37 of 39. And uh, two of four downfield long balls. Solid game from him defensively. Obviously, in terms of the offensive metrics, Ruben Semedo does more. But, I mean, you really can't ask for much more than basically a perfect defensive performance. You really can't ask for anything else. Yeah, and Semedo, even though he didn't have a perfect game defensively, you know, he did not win all of his defensive duels. He actually only won one of three. But... Still played very well as well. And with the ball, he was good. He had four progressive runs. Uh, he completed three of his eight long balls. Obviously, no one's going to complete all those long balls from center back. A lot of times it's just difficult to do that. And he had a shot, but it wasn't on target. Um, yep. He was pretty good with the ball at his feet, though. A couple times he did bring it surprisingly far forward before finally dumping it off, which I thought was interesting. Uh, even though he usually does carry the ball at his feet, I feel like I usually see him passing it pretty quickly. But... It seemed like he was dribbling a bit more. I wish I had the dribbling metrics or if he took any sustained dribbles, but it seemed like he was doing that a lot more as well. He didn't clock any successful dribbles, but he did have successful offensive duels where he got himself out of pressure, not intentionally trying to dribble on somebody, but getting himself out of pressure. And to be fair to Semedo, even though he technically only had one defensive duel win, one of the duels he lost, it was a foul. So when you commit a foul, even though, you know, that guy wasn't getting by him, when you commit a foul, that's a defensive duel loss. So we'll, we'll even give that one. The one that was really bad was what ended up leading to uh, one of the shots. I think it was actually the, I think it was actually Benedetto's or what led to the, the shot that was Benedetto's when he came all the way up to midfield to challenge Benedetto for the ball. And he just way overcommitted. And then that led to Benedetto playing the ball down the other side to Payette. And he came down and that's what ended up leading to his shot that was like right on target, if I remember it correctly. So that was the really heinous one, uh, again, which was from a little bit more of a lazy challenge that we've kind of lamented with Semedo. But other than that, he had a solid game, you know. He had a good game, and he is that, like Theo said, he's that quarterback. We want him on the ball, getting those restarts and getting those long balls. Uh, he's fantastic with those. Theo, what were your opinions about the performance from our center back duo? 
Look, those two guys have have gelled together the last uh, since last year, and I thought uh, Pape Abu Sisse made a case in uh, in the summer of 2019 potentially to start getting back into the 11. Uh, he was away for Copa Africa, and I said, you know what? It's a matter of time before he's going to find his way in the starting 11. But mm-hmm. no chance. He's he's far and away the third in that pecking order for that center back position. Uh, both Ba and Semero had good games, and like you guys mentioned, the numbers uh, prove it. Uh, and it's a testament to what little chances we had scored on us. Again, any balls that were being whipped in, they were being cleared out. These guys were were clean. They did their job, and they got saw that that clean sheet. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it was great, great performances from them. Looking to our wing backs, we kind of already talked about Holebas. Might as well get the metrics done. Four for six defensive duels. Now, some people be like, "Oh, he didn't have a hundred percent duel win rate. How can you say he was the best?" The two duels that he lost, one was a foul which I don't think should have been a foul, but I digress. And the second was a back pass. As a defender, when you're in a defensive duel and your opponent has the ball and lays the ball off in a back pass, that technically counts as a lost duel. Even though for me, if the ball's getting passed backwards in a duel situation like that, you successfully defended. Because if you're forcing a restart, to me, that's a successful duel. But that's semantics. And that's why we always go into context with the data so that you can understand why. So as far as I'm concerned, nobody got by Holebas. He didn't actually lose any duels that came near him. One was a foul. Okay, you can argue that that's lost. But the second one was a back pass. That's what you want him to do. Uh, He was two for four in aerial duels. He was successful in his only sliding tackle. Seven interceptions, 10 recoveries, three clearances. Now that's seven interceptions. That's his season high in interceptions right now. So that's the most he's ever gotten. Uh, 10 recoveries is tied for his highest. He had a great game. Now, offensively, he completed zero out of four of his crosses. Some people will be like, oh, that was terrible. We don't care about the quality of the crosses. We care about the quantity. We have brought this up in other podcasts. Martins doesn't care about quantity, or sorry, he doesn't care about quality, it's quantity. He's playing a numbers game. He knows that if we send more crosses in, we're bound to get something in there. And that's the game we play with crosses. Also, for what it's worth, if you go and watch the film for these crosses, it's not like he was absolutely just blasting them into the stands. You know, in terms of the actual accuracy of those crosses, he wasn't far off. Obviously, they might not have hit an Olympiacos player's head, but... The first one, Mandanda came out and got it, and it was close to getting to the Olympiacos player. The second one was a little bit overhit. The third one actually did get to El Arabi, but I think he was offside, so that technically counts as not completing a cross. Obviously, that would make it easier with a player being offside, but he still hit the target. He's there. The fourth one was a little bit short and was blocked by a Marseille defender, I think, at the, around the top of the 18-yard box. So, yeah, I'm not super concerned with 0 for 4 on crosses. He was getting in those positions. He was getting into a position where he had a little bit of time to even ready himself and make that hit. And if he keeps blasting enough of those in, eventually one is going to get on an Olympiacos player's head and result in a shot on target or a goal. So not a big yeah, worry for me. I agree 100%, Peter. And one of the problems with Olebas is that his dribbling isn't quite great and his hips are just so... He's, he has no agility, so... He struggles to even make space for those crosses. It's almost like old Torosidis. We've made this comparison. <laughs> like, Olebas is coming in for a Torosidis here. But it's just like he, he that class is permanent and his crossing is actually decent. But it's just like, can he get space? And I feel like he's been unable to get space to put in crosses all year. He finally got that against Marseille. And so I think he performed well. And I want to bring your guys' attention. Do you guys remember he played a ball in, I think it was to Masuras, he made like a nice run and he was fouled 
was it at the end of the first half, maybe I want to say, and he played this perfect ball into Masuras running down the line. I don't think it came up of anything. Or actually, maybe that was the El Arabi chance in the 44th minute at the end of the first half, Do you, or maybe 40th I, minute. I think, yes. I think you're right, Labro. Yeah, so he played in that perfect ball. That was just like, I, I, I remember seeing that. I was like, where the heck has this been for how many matches now? So anyway, yeah, a great game by Jolebas, especially in the first half. And Cross is not worried about that. I'm more worried about him getting right. space to put crosses in. Yeah, and he had he had five attempted passes into the penalty area. Forget the crosses. He had five separate passes into the penalty area. So he was getting those looks and trying to create those opportunities. And that's it's the thought that we care a lot about. You know, execution might not always be there, but these are numbers games here, guys. So if we get more of them in, we're bound to get something. And that's what we haven't really seen from him yet. So it's good that we get to see that from him now. You know, he's going to also get more rests with Vinagre. You know, Holebas can't be playing these games every week. So I think we're still going to continue to get something out of him. Now for the other wing back, we also have Rafinha. Rafinha, again, heavily involved offensively. He was our second top player in terms of overall link-up play. He had 51 different pass combinations, which was second only to Mvila. Uh, Mvila, as everybody knew, he was just omnipresent in that game everywhere, getting the ball to everybody. But Rafinha was very heavily involved in the offense. Defensively, he was pretty good. Three for five in defensive duels, uh, zero for one aerial duels, three out of four for loose balls, and then one for three on his slides. Two interceptions, 10 recoveries, two clearances. Now, offensively, we would have liked to see more. He only attempted two crosses, one of which did meet ahead. But, you know, I think in the long run, we will get more of that from him. One progressive run that ended up leading to a restart, but that was his attempt at getting forward. Three for four in offensive duels, uh, completed four downfield long ball attempts into the PK area. Yeah, and I think his biggest contribution probably was when he stripped that ball away towards the end of the game to hand it back to uh, to Valbuena, mm -hmm. which created the goal. So again, he, he pressed up high and and uh, he's not showing his age. He's, he's playing good football right now. Yeah, uh, definitely is. I know that you know everybody's used to Omar getting forward and getting many more crosses off per game. Yeah, uh, but you know it's it's different. Unfortunately, you know Rafinha is a little bit older, but he did his job. He's heavily involved. He has a great touch, absurdly high shorts, but we're not going to hold that against him. <laughs> uh, overall, just a solid game from both him and Holebas. And then you know I think now we can get to really who I believe were our stars, which were the midfield. Yeah, I was just about to say I'm really excited to talk about these two players. Two players that have received some negative attention in the past. Obviously, Buhalakis is a very controversial player, a player that maybe in part to the fact that he's Greek and he has that special expectation on him, but a player that sometimes is not really welcomed and loved by the fans. And then Jan Mvila, who is a new signing. This is the first time we've seen him play in a big European game. And with a lot of people saying, oh, he's not really as valuable in Greece. This is when we're going to need him. He showed us that we were so correct about that. He had a great game. Buhalakis had a great game. As Theo mentioned at the outset of this podcast, it's two players that had sort of been stuck together. A lot of people were concerned, could they even play together uh, in the same midfield? And I think they showed everyone today that at least against a big European opponent, they can do that and they can do that incredibly, incredibly well. Yeah, I just wanted to make a comment about Buhalakis. We got in a little bit of an exchange with Olympiacos France talking about 
just Buhalakis in general. And just I, I'm thinking back on Buhalakis now as a young player coming through Olympiacos. And one of the main problems was his confidence and his health. And, you know, he's played almost three straight years and he's been healthy. And I finally, he, he has that confidence. You can see it. And I think he's a real confidence player. When he has the confidence, he knows he has the trust of the coach. He has the trust of backroom staff. You know, he performs. And and I, I just got to give him a shout out because, again, in Kariskaki, I've been, he gets whistled. He gets whistled. He gets called names, blah, blah, blah. And that, that's been happening for three years, I bet. So, you know, he's a player that goes. He turns up. He is. He, he has talent. He has talent. He just performed massively in the Champions League as the captain of Olympiacos. Like, just amazing from him. The, the mental strength needed and also his performances. And just, just so impressed with him. Absolutely. And this is when I'm going to call out the national team and JVS because they need to hear these statistics. He was one of our top players in terms of distance covered. 11.2 kilometers. The only person who ran more than him was Jan Vila. These guys covered so much ground. And funny enough, in the positional mapping, they still kind of were on top of each other. But they covered so much ground, it didn't matter. They could hold hands if they're going to run the, the field all over together and cover all the ground. I don't care because those guys were amazing. 11 interceptions and 17 recoveries from Bukhalakis. That's not just a high for him in terms of uh, what's been going on for the season. He's been averaging in previous seasons only six, six interceptions and about nine recoveries per game. These are season highs for any player I can find in Greece. I looked across every team, every metric. Not a single person in Greece has had 17 recoveries in a game all over the place. Gurbelis hasn't done it either, and neither has Zeka. So, JVS, take notes. Bukalikis needs to be on the field for the Greek national team with performances like this. Now, in terms of defensive duels, he was four for eight, and three of the defensive duels that he lost, it was when he was pressing the defense in the opposing third. So, again, back passes, they still count as a lost defensive duel, but he pressed them, and that's what we wanted. So I'm not going to begrudge him those three. So for me, he only really had one lost defensive duel. Offensively, uh, three for seven, he was dispossessed, you know, kind of when he was isolated. Uh, one progressive run, completed 45 of 51 passes, five long balls, four of which were downfield, all completed. One was a switch of the field, and he completed one of two attempted through balls, uh, one which was a pass into the penalty area. Incredible game from Bukalakis. This was a performance of a class number six. Yeah, amazing from him. And I also want to mention the distance covered metrics. I think we needed to get those from UEFA, uh, if I'm yeah. not mistaken. We got the uh, mailbag question, obviously, so I figured it Correct. would be uh, valuable to say that you have to go to UEFA to get those. So unfortunately, we don't have those metrics for Greece, but I think it's pretty well known that Bukalakis is almost always one of our biggest travelers on the pitch uh yep. even in previous years when he's had sort of a different role but Lambro also made a very good point that you can see him becoming more confident doing some things that have sort of been asked of him more recently he's always had that long ball in his locker but you can tell he's sometimes been afraid to actually use it and the fact that mm -hmm. he was five of five on those in the Marseille game and not only that but four of five were downfield long balls, which in my opinion are harder to complete than just a switch of the field to potentially a wide open fullback or something like that. You know, Correct. he's really making progressive plays and difficult plays and converting them at an excellent rate. Absolutely. Theo, what were your thoughts on Bukalakis? 
Well, look again, Buhalakis, like uh, like Lambro mentioned, and I've I've been to the stadium where he's gone whistled at and sworn at, and and I don't know why they pick on this kid. I mean, uh, forget about JVS; uh, he's not going to put him on because he has a higher calling, not allowing him to put him on. But uh, for Olympiakos, <laughs> this is a player that we we need, and this is a player that can 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 stretch out opposing defenses. Can calm the game, calm the game down. I should say, uh, when we need to, at times, makes that that cut pass. So uh, he's a kid that was was growing up in in our ranks, and I'm happy he's gotten his chance. And with Martins, I feel like again this year he'll be an integral part, like he was last year of the squad. And just just a quick point, I made this point about Bacasetas for the national team. I care a lot who the captain of our football team is, and Buhalakis is a leader. He was a leader on the pitch that night, and just. You know, that means a lot that to me, especially. He demonstrated that quality. I don't know if that's one of the first times he's been captain, but just no fear. Like, great, just great all around. I, I can't say a word bad about him. He made one or two mistakes, but great game from him, you know. It's just brave. You, you have to be brave to be a Greek player and play for Olympiakos because the media comes for you. The fans come for you. It's difficult. It's difficult. And... Yeah, it's been an incredible journey for Bukharakis to get to this point, and it must mean so much for him to captain Olympiakos to a big victory in Europe. Now, all of this positive talk about Bukharakis, he was excellent, but that's not to discount what his partner in midfield did, Jan Mvila. He also had a really solid game, as we talked about. He covered just a little bit more distance, 11.7 kilometers. He was also doing a lot. I think generally he was probably a bit more defensive, winning five of his seven defensive duels. Pretty solid stuff from Mvila. That's what we kind of knew he was going to do when he came in. Five interceptions, seven recoveries, one clearance. Not Buhalakis-type numbers, but still really good, especially when you consider comparing that to other players in Greece, other Greek players. Obviously, he's French, but still. Uh, he was 0-for-1 on aerial duels. He lost the 1 and 0-for-3 on loose balls. Offensively, he did get involved in the attack a little bit. One progressive run. He had one offensive duel that he won. Out of the 61 passes that he attempted, he completed 57 of them, which is pretty good. And he also completed all of his long balls. So both of our midfielders in that midfield pairing completing all of their long balls. Jan Mvila, it was eight of them. Three of them were switches, you know, just switching the field, which, as we talked about, not as difficult of a caliber play as that downfield long ball. But the other five were down to the right side of the pitch. Among one of them was a really nice ball to Rafinha that eventually led to an entry into the final third. If you look at Jan Mvila's season averages, he usually converts 69% of those long balls. Obviously, 100% is about as good as you can get there, and it's quite an improvement over what we've seen from him throughout the season. Yeah, and we saw kind of that downfield vision that we really didn't think he had in his capacity. You know, we were making those complaints in Greece that he couldn't break these teams down, he couldn't stretch the field. We didn't think he had that capacity. Now, I will say this. Again, we brought up earlier that he was the team leader in terms of link-up play. He had the most pass combinations on the team. He was quite literally the glue that held our possession together. One-touch passes, very fluid ball movement constantly. He was the engine of our possession game, which, which is fantastic to see. So you can't take that away from him. You know, Bukalakis was much more of that the workhorse, I should say, in, in this game. He was running all over the place, getting all of these recoveries. But Envila was helping to apply a lot of that pressure, which then led to Bukalakis scooping those balls up and getting forward. So a few comments about Jan Envila. I'm about to take a victory lap. 
Some people were saying I didn't recognize him against the Mon. <laughs> I was going to bring that up. <laughs> <laughs> no confusing people, him for Mari Kamara today, right? <laughs> yeah, a lot of people were making jokes about that. I don't hear those people anymore. <laughs> those downfield balls, someone else was seeing it against Ammonia. I guess other people didn't see that. Jan, you know me. I'm there with you. <laughs> So they didn't actually exist against the one, yeah. <laughs> nope, they existed. Yeah. Jan, I got you. I gotta start working at Y Scout because we'll count those as long balls against Ammonia. <laughs> okay. We'll go back. <laughs> but but yeah, again, Jan and Via, we talked about it. We talked about it. A lot of people were saying, Oh, this guy's washed. I don't know. We said in Europe, the experience, the one touch passing, the dribbling, the close control top that's all i'm gonna say um we kind of knew in greece maybe this won't be appreciated it's going to be harder to see but in europe you could see you could see even ammonia is i made the joke they're a mid-table greek side or an upper echelon greek side pauk drawing to them kind of proves that they're a mid-table greek side um <laughs> but yeah so kyanavia just a great game for sure and just to add to what you guys were, were saying in Vila, i think left france with a bit of a chip on his shoulder he wanted to, to showcase against the French team and on the scale of Champions League that he's still able to play. And whereas Buhalakis, I feel, was uh, made the, the more difficult passes, it was Mvila that cleared up the room and, and helped yep. a lot in that midfield to ensure that that happened. Absolutely. Yeah, I mean, great performances from both of them. I mean, in my opinion, you could make the argument that either one of them, man of the match, especially Bukalaikis with his, you know, with his work rate. You know, we all, we've talked about the plight of the DM. You know, there's thankless work for that. And, you know, we had to just put the praises out there because we know that sometimes people ignore them and they look at just the guys that score the goals, like Hassan. But, you know, these guys, without their work, this game might not have this outcome. I would probably guarantee that it doesn't have this outcome if they didn't have the games that they had. Now, moving on. Uh, our wingers also both had solid games. Radejevic uh, completed 20 of 22 passes. He had that one long pass, which was that midfield switch over to Masuras that he then played in uh, that led to a shot on goal. So Radejevic, in terms of what we've seen him do in the past, may not have been super involved, but everything he did had purpose. Two for three crosses. He had uh, two out of three successful passes into the penalty area. Three for five on dribbles. He he was trying to take those defenders on. Good to see. Three for eight in offensive duels. That's okay to see. You know, he did get isolated up in the final third a couple times. Five progressive runs where he looked dangerous getting forward with the ball. And we know that that's really one of his strengths. And then that one progressive run is what led to the goal that was called offsides for Masuras. You know, again, Radejevic, very dangerous with those counters, dangerous when he has space to move in with the ball. I think he had a pretty solid game. Yeah, I think so too. And I think um, this is where Radejevic really shows what he's got in these European games where he has a little more time to run, I guess, in Greece when the field gets congested down the final third of the opposing team. He can't really use his pace and dribbling ability. So Especially with that called off goal, I think he really showed some skill to get down the line. And I think, I don't know if you guys remember, but he hit the post. It was called offside, but he did hit the post, I think. And it was clearly offside, but just another thing he did. I thought he played well. And I know we're about to get into Masuras. I think Masuras played a, played a great game as much as we discuss his limitations in the final third. I thought he did pretty well as well. Uh, Masuras definitely had a, a great game too. 
Uh, 22 of 31 completed passes, two for four uh, long balls. The four attempts were two switches, two downfield. He completed one of each. Uh, three attempted passes into the penalty area, one that was successful. He was tied for, in, in terms of shot creation with Valbuena, creative opportunity shot creation. Three key passes, three shot assists. That is his best offensive performance in the season for us, unless you count the two goals he scored for the first game of the season. But in terms of opportunity creation, he's never created this number of, of score, goal-scoring opportunities for us ever as an Olympiacos player. One for five offensive duels. We know that he's not the best dribbling and taking people on. One progressive run that did look really dangerous getting forward. And, you know, we know that he tracks back defensively. Three for five defensive duels. Two for four in the air. One out of four loose balls. Four interceptions, three recoveries, one clearance. Uh, again, you know, we, the work rate's there. Very valuable to us. But finally, an offensive performance that really led to some shot creation. No, Ari, and I think you hit the nail on the head. Uh, he he's a guy that's a workhorse. He doesn't take a day off. He's uh, he's not the most talented player on the team, and I think with uh, with Bruma eventually getting ready to, I think he's going to hit a, a starting eleven spot. Masuras continues to put the work in and continues to show Pedro Martins that he's a reliable guy. And obviously, adding to that offensive side as well uh, only does uh, more to help him out and help his case out. Yeah, and then of course the you know the wing the wing play was solid for this game, but I do think we need to see a little bit more. You know, really we haven't had a, a super dynamic wing, winger since Podence left. We were hoping that Radejevic would kind of pick up the slack a little bit, but he still isn't having those those Podence like performances with major impact. So. I'm hoping that we continue to get higher level offensive performances out of both of these guys. Uh, now, moving to the forwards, Valbuena. I mean, I don't even really have to say it. This guy is always a contender for man of the match. <laughs> I mean, amazing performances. 42 of 50 passes completed. Three for three long balls. Uh, two of them, which were downfield. One, which is a switch into the box. Uh, one out of three attempted through balls. Two for three in crosses. Three for four passes into the penalty area. He ended up getting the assist for the goal. Three shot assists, three key passes, just like Masuras. One successful dribble. Four for 11 offensive duels. We're not going to begrudge him his attempts to try and dribble and make something from nothing. Four really dangerous progressive runs. I mean, just Balbuena is a consummate professional. Every game is fantastic. He's always a man of the match contender. And we talk about just how mad it is that Valbuena was once a Marseille player almost 10 years ago, and at 36 years old, this man absolutely walks into their team and is potentially the best player in their 11. Unreal from him. Obviously a big game for Valbuena coming to Marseille, or not coming to Marseille, but coming up against Marseille uh, with Olympiacos. He has sort of a complicated history there that we talked about with Martial and with Mo, but... My God, like this guy just turns up. What a player he is. And to see him do that against Marseille is just amazing. He was really everywhere and he was just so important for our attack. Yeah, I, I, again, I just, Valbuena, what a fantastic game. If I had only a few comments, I would say the goal that Masuras got ruled offside, if he had scored that chance, that the goal would have counted. You know how it rebounded and then Masuras went for it. And also the other chance he had on Mandanda, I don't know if maybe he could have crossed it. Not going to fault him too much on that. 
another comment I would say, I don't know if you guys remember Panathinaikos, big big player, striker Cissé, Gibril Cissé, got in a back and forth with our friend uh, Olympiacos France and Martial. And Cissé, I guess, was saying on French radio, on, on the newspaper Le Kip, I think it's called Le Kip, I'm not sure, my French is yeah. terrible. Um, he was basically saying Valbuena had an okay game. He didn't play so well. Uh, he had motivation to play good in this game. He didn't even play that well. Well, Olympiacos France answered back and basically just stuck it to him and basically said, yeah, Valbuena will start in Marseille, blah, 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 blah. And they went back and forth, back and forth, and it got yeah. picked up in Greek media. I don't know if any of you guys saw that. And Cissé yeah. basically was saying, I'll see you in Marseille. Martial said, okay, I may come to Marseille. We can speak then. It was just hilarious <laughs> uh, back and forth between the two of them. My favorite part of that exchange was when uh, Martial told him, you know, stick to DJing and wearing dresses because you're better <laughs> off than talking soccer. I died. It was an amazing exchange. Martial is a legend. Loved having him on here. Definitely have to have him back on too. That was amazing. Uh, but yeah, no, Valbueno, again, another contender for man of the match. This guy shows up for every game. Champions League, Greece, doesn't matter. Consummate professional. And I mean, he really is a role model for our younger players to look up to. Uh, a real good role model for them to have that they can emulate uh, 100%. Yeah, another guy that uh, doesn't take a day off, but with a lot of talent, is the catalyst for our attack. And I think ultimately he's the he was the MVP for me last year. And if all goes well this year, he's gonna have to be one of our top players to have a successful 2020-2021 season for Olympiacos. Hundred uh, percent. Now his partner in the attack, El Arabi. Um, El Arabi, uh, nine of twelve passes completed. Didn't really see that much of the ball in possession. But that was by design. 0 for 1 in terms of his long passes. He had that attempted long ball into the, the penalty area. Uh, 0 for 2 for his shots. Um, his first shot that was off target was the cross that came in from the left. If he had put anything on that, if he had gotten any kind of real touch on that ball, on that swing in from Masuras, that's a goal. Uh, yeah. Unfortunately, he couldn't really get a piece of it. And then in the second half, he had that header from the cross uh, that came from the right side from Valbuena. Again, just like had to get a little bit more on it, a little bit more momentum from his body into the head. And then that probably would have stayed further down, went a little bit over. Uh, attempted to take some players on. 0 for 2 dribbles. We didn't see any more of those gorgeous cuts or Cruyffs that really just schooled defenders. None of that this time. Uh, he tried. Unfortunately, didn't work out. But he did press really well, pressing the defenders. Won three for four defensive duels. Worked hard, didn't have, you know, the flashiest, really wasn't the guy that people wrote the headlines about, but he put the work in. Yeah, that second chance you mentioned, the header, uh, I recall that being a pretty solid chance and one that I've seen him score. And at the time, you know, I was thinking, oh, he could have scored that, but that's okay. Um, the flashy parts of the game, as you said, he's not going to be in the front page of the newspapers, but I think away from the actual scoring the goals part, he had a very good game. We all know how good he is holding up play and whatnot. Pretty solid game passing and whatnot. And I think a solid game from him overall. We obviously didn't need him to score a goal because we have Hassan, the Egyptian Zlatan, off the bench. But solid game from El Arabi, I think. 
if we're going to do this in Portugal next week, he's going to have to finish a chance like those two he had, the one he whiffed in the header. I think it's going to be really hard there. And I think if we have hope of getting a positive result, one of those chances would need it, would have needed to gone in. I, I think we're really going to need him to be clinical. I, I've mentioned this in a former podcast, but in the Champions League, I feel like the chances you need to put them away. And that's the difference between top teams and Champions League teams that finish in the top two and teams that finish in the bottom two. Benedetto, not a top player, got the one crucial chance to score and give the result to Marseille. Didn't do it. A Harry Kane, a Lewandowski, just any of those strikers, the the top class strikers that we've played in the past, score those goals. You know, Benedetto doesn't do it. Hopefully El Arabi can do it in Portugal. And that's my one comment I would say. I always focus on those few chances you get in Champions League because we need to score those. Well, for sure, Labro, and I agree that he's been a little bit streaky this season. Uh, to start off that, you know, that cup final game against Ajax, uh, he just seemed like he was a little bit lost on the pitch. But it's it's been a bit of a weird year again. We just finished in August. We're starting right away in September. Yeah. So I hope for him he's able to to find him more regularly, like he was bagging them uh, last year. But El Arabi, uh, even when he doesn't score at times, you know, he holds onto the ball very tough to beat one on one to strip the ball off him. It uh, gives yeah. a chance to hang onto the ball a little bit. He distributes. But I'll, I'll agree for sure that next week and, and moving forward, he's going to have to be uh, the El Arabi of, of last season, consistently putting the ball in back of the net. Yeah, and then, of course, his his partner, substitute Hassan, came on, scored the game winner. Didn't even play for 20 minutes, gets the game winner. Everybody made fun of me this last week. I got plenty of plenty of shtick for opening my mouth and making the statement that I did after the autonomous match. For those of you that maybe weren't aware... After Atromedos, when he scored and people were touting him, I said, look, if he actually scores against Marseille and we win the game, didn't have to be his game winner, just as long as he scored and we won, I would buy the jersey, eat my words. I'm eating my words. However, however, I just want you all to know that that goal he had was not intentional, okay? It hit him. Like, he, he didn't even really try to get anything on it. It hit his body. And just so you guys know, it registered an, uh, a goal threat metric of 0.17. So that shot goes in 17 times out of 100. It was not a dangerous shot. We were lucky that it went in. And he only had one successful action in his whole time on the pitch. And it was that goal. 20 minutes, over a dozen touches, over a dozen different interactions. And he had one successful interaction. It was the goal. That's all I'm saying. <laughs> Adi, there's only one person in the world of Greek football and Olympiakos who is slandering Hassan after what he's done, and of course it's you. I mean, uh, this man, Adi, always finds a way to say something <laughs> negative about Hassan, not, even if he gives I, us three big points in Europe. <laughs> I'm, not, listen, I'm happy we got the points. And listen, he, you know, he came up big this time. He, he scores, but when he doesn't score, he doesn't offer us anything. That's all I'm saying. That's literally all I ever say. That's it. <laughs> no, Ari, and that's and that's true. When he doesn't score, he doesn't offer anything. But he's almost made this a little bit of a habit now the last couple of years. I remember him scoring uh, in 2018 at Panionio at Nes Mini, a 92nd minute goal. Uh, last year he scored against uh, Atromito, which was a big goal in the 90th minute because we were playing Pauk two weeks later. So we went to Tuba with a lead. So he's he's kind of getting to that habit of scoring those dramatic goals. But you're right, when he's off, uh, he's really off. You don't you don't see much of him. <laughs> 
Yeah, Hassan really does have a flair for the dramatic. I mean, I obviously he's like not we joke, but he's not actually like a top striker. You know, we know what he does, and a lot of the time he's just a very negative influence to the team. But it's it's just hilarious, and it's also a great story for those who weren't familiar. And I apologize if I get this wrong, but this goal from Hassan on Wednesday against Marseille, I think it came on the five year anniversary of his father's passing away. And yeah. so it was obviously a very emotional moment for him when he scored the goal. And weirdly enough, and I, I hope I get this right, it was almost five years ago to the day or something when he was with Braga, he scored a big European goal against Marseille in the yes. Europa League. And That's I think correct, it was yeah. maybe a day, five years and a day ago or something. Like it was maybe right yeah. after his father's passing away. But really, really wild story. And, and obviously we're very happy for Hassan. He's a likable guy in general. I mean, he seems no, like a nice is. dude. Yeah. I don't That's... hate him. For everybody on Twitter, I don't hate him. I don't. I, I like him <laughs> as a person. All I'm doing is talking about his technical ability. And all people do on Reddit and, and Twitter is rip me because <laughs> they think I have this vendetta against him. I Adi is to Hassan as Lambro is to Pauk. Like, no one needs to even mention it. But just, like, bring up, oh, by the way, Hassan is, like, a horrible striker. Yeah, I, I, do, find, I, I do find a way to bring up, uh, to slander Pauk a lot. And, okay, I'm sorry, Pauk's not my favorite club. So, when they lose to mid-table sides constantly and someone has to bring it up because... They give you enough tried. material. They give you enough material to do it, Thank you, know? you. Thank you. Someone understands. <laughs> <laughs> but one comment about Hassan, the likability factor, again, I was joking with these guys, like, it's just like, Hassan sucks, and then it's like, Hassan, like, literally does the nicest things, like, I saved 50 adopted children from a fire, and it's like, <laughs> god damn it, Hassan, why are you so likable, like, you know, like, it just seems like whatever he does, he's like, he has a terrible game, we're like, god damn it, Hassan, like, again, you didn't play well, and then he's like, Oh, sorry. I, my mind was not in the game because I just adopted a hundred children from a war-torn country and gave them food. I didn't hear you. Did you say something about my game? Like, anyway, just such a likable guy, such a nice guy, and such a family value guy. I don't know. It, it's tough to criticize him, but I, I have a feeling going in deeper into the season, we'll criticize him a little bit as well. Well, we'll see. Let's see if he can keep up the the action against Porto. Because uh, that's going to be a much tougher test uh, than Marseille was, 100%. Before we get into the Porto game, because we do want to do a quick little pre-match for that, do we want to go around and, and give out our man of the match awards and maybe also give a coach's grade to Martins for the Marseille game? Oh, I yes, can, 100%. I think I'll start. And there were so many candidates for man of the match for me. I mean, we talk about Ba having a great game at the back. We talk about both the midfielders. We talk about Balbuena. Obviously, Hassan with the decisive goal. I'm going to go with Andreas Buhalakis for man of the match, just based on what he did in midfield. Obviously, he's not the type of player who's going to show up on the score sheet, but that doesn't mean he's not a super impactful player for this team. He was absolutely incredible. The best game we've seen from him, statistically or not, this year. Just everything he did, the way he is becoming more adjusted to a sort of new role with the team now that he doesn't have Guillerme in the midfield with him and also didn't have Madi Kamara in the midfield with him. Great, great, great performance from Buharakis. For the coach's grade, I can't give Martins anything less than an A for a massive, massive result. We talked a lot about the really nuanced tactical choices that he made, the way he took risks and they paid off. 
those types of things are just the hallmarks of a great manager for me. It wasn't as much the changes for me today. Uh, we've talked in the past about how in previous games, especially in Greece, he sees something and adjusts it. He didn't necessarily need to do a lot of that in terms of the substitutions today. Obviously, a sub scored the goal, but it was the team that he put out there and the instructions he had given them from the start, you know, when we talked about the pressing and how we sort of turned on and off the pressing, we weren't constantly doing it. We picked our moments, uh, the way that we lined up with sort of an unconventional 4-4-2, um, just everything he did, he gets, he gets an A from me. No, well, you know what? Much for the same reason, Peter. I'm gonna I'm gonna give Martins an A as well. Um, at some point, there were not many substitutions coming on. I was wondering, you know, where is he going with this? But you know, he proved this wrong again that by risking it all towards the end and getting that victory. Uh, my MVP would be, uh, or the man of the match would be uh, Jan Mvila. Much for what you said for Buhalakis as well. I think those two guys together really didn't make us miss uh, Madi Kamara much which is saying something, and uh, hopefully they can get it together again because they'll be called upon uh, in Porto. Yeah, I'm also going to give Pedro Martins an A, but I'm going to have to give John Van Schip an F. Buhalakis and Masuras, what fantastic games. John Van Schip, wake up, my man. Start playing the, the star players of Olympiacos. <laughs> and <laughs> yeah, my MVP will be Buhalakis. Fantastic game. For me, uh, uh, it was definitely tough. It was definitely between... Bukalakis and Villa and Valbuena for me. I think I'm going to give it to Valbuena uh, only because, again, like we said before, him and Masuras, three key passes, three shot assists, but Valbuena did offer a lot more going forward. And guys, let's be honest, without Valbuena, we probably, you know, just as much as Bukalakis and Villa winning that midfield battle, you still need somebody to create and really make opportunities for somebody to score. And that was Valbuena primarily. He ended up getting the go-ahead assist. Uh, so I'm going to give it to Valbuena also just so I can be different and edgy. <laughs> Fair enough. Yeah, well, Valbuena, as we said, this man is so much better than Payet and Tovin. I don't care what anyone says. Um, now let's get into Porto. They lost 3-1 to Manchester City last week when we were beating Marseille. Obviously, Manchester City are a massive club. You know, there's not much you can take away from that. This Porto team... They are very good. They are levels above Marseille. So we have to come out and play really, really good football. We didn't miss Mari Kamara that much last week. You know, I found myself almost forgetting he was out when we were watching the game. We might want him in. Obviously, we're not going to have him, but we might need that full-strength team a little bit more against Porto. They are a big side. They have a lot of good players, and it's going to be a tough one. Yeah, it really is. Uh, these guys tactically astute they pass the ball around really well uh, we definitely have a really tough test ahead of us no for sure and I think uh, correct me guys if I'm wrong but I'm, I'm pretty sure we've never started the Champions League campaign with two victories so you, you get those six points to start yeah. and you're really halfway there there's going to be a crowd in Porto so you're going to have to wonder how our guys are going to react there's about 4,000 people we haven't played in front of a crowd this year uh, so that's going to be unique uh, everything else camera again will be missing but Hopefully, Buhalakis and Vila can get it together. Uh, they're missing some key players as well. I mean, Ivan Marcano, who was with us for uh, for a couple of seasons, won't uh, won't be available for uh, Conceição. Uh, Sergio Oliveira, who was with Pauk, he's not going to be there. Uh, Zaidu, yeah. another left back we were looking at last year as well, or in the offseason, I should say, is not going to be there. They have a couple of guys missing. But um, I, I think Marta is going to probably approach the game similarly like he did against Marseille. I, I can't see many, many changes. I don't know about you guys. 
but um, it's going to be interesting to see what we're going to do there and uh, hoping for, for the three points. Absolutely. You know, and looking into Porto, we did some, we, we've done some tactical analysis. Porto generally runs the 4-3-3. Now they do make adjustments. Guys, it's no surprise. Portuguese coaches, they tinker. We've seen it with Vias Boas. You know, we've seen it with Martins and the Porto coach is no different. He runs a 4-3-3 generally, but when he's playing against better competition in Portugal, he does switch to a 4-1-4-1. That way he has a midfielder behind the midfield line, making sure nobody can get into those dangerous areas. We've brought up before, when you run a 4-4-2, you run the risk of getting exploited in the space behind the midfield, between the midfield and the defense. So that's what he likes to do against better competition in Portugal. Now against Manchester City, he ran a 5-4-1. Very, very defensive, not surprising. It's Manchester City. And that he was going, he was playing the counter. He was playing a much more defensive team. Uh, he's probably not going to do that against us. He's probably going to approach it much more balanced. Maybe a 4-1-4-1. I'd imagine he's going to do a 4-3-3. Now, in all competitions this season, they have a very efficient attack. All competitions, 25.6% in terms of their positional attack efficiency. That means... In one in every four possessions as they go forward, it ends in a shot. Their counter is slightly less efficient. It's 20%, but that's still okay. Uh, that's still pretty good. So it's just this team is just way more deadly than Marseille is. They're better in every aspect. We have a lot of work to do, and we're going to have to be very careful. And they will definitely exploit the wings. They love to work the wings. They are averaging over 16 crosses a game. They are going to get to the end line. They are going to challenge Holebas. They are going to challenge Rafinha. And the scarier part about that is that they connect on 45% of their crosses. They have a huge guy, a huge point man. His name is Musa Marega. He's 6'1", almost 6'2". He weighs almost 200 pounds. He is a big boy. He is a big target. So Ba and Semedo are going to have their hands full. Uh, now, fortunately for us, Musa Marega is not having a great go of it for the season. He's got two goals in five games, but both those goals came in their 5 nothing win of Boa Vista. So, I, I, but this is going to be tough, guys. This is a whole different tier of difficulty compared to Marseille. And on Marega, um, he is a name that I first heard of, I think it was two years ago. It was the year that Porto made it to the round of 16 or maybe even the quarterfinal of the Champions League and then went out to Liverpool. That season, Marega was absolutely banging in goals. Uh, he's two years older now. I think it was two years. Uh, but we know he's got goals in him. And as you said, Adi, he is a big dude. He is going to be up there. And he's going to yeah. be getting the ball because they like to cross. And they also complete a lot of their crosses as well. I mean, we very briefly discussed Holebas and Rafinha's crossing numbers. Yeah. Porto are connecting 45% of their crosses. And they're getting 16 a game. That is... Yeah. That's scary, especially with Marega up front. Yeah. You don't want to see a guy touching the ball eight times in the box. Like, you don't want to see somebody with that many chances. That's yeah, it's a one lot. of them will and go in. Yeah. We have to be super careful. Yeah. And one comment I will make, though, for Porto, I think we're catching them at the best time possible because new signings, Marco Grujic from Liverpool, as well as new signing Felipe Anderson, haven't hit the field yet. So, that is one bonus, I think, as well as new boy from Chelsea, I think Malang Sar. He's played like one or two games, but yeah. And new guys, Zaidu, who we were linked with, it's 
it's there. You know, when you look at the team, like they're very good, but they it's almost when Pauk hit Benfica, they bought in all these new players and they were talented, great players, but the groove wasn't there, you know? And so I'm really hoping that maybe this could be the chance to get points off of them because they haven't grooved together. I noticed that they dropped a few points in Portugal. I think it was sporting, actually. Fair, not a lot to take from that sporting to top team. But I think this could be a chance for us. I know the statistics show that they're a top team and they have fantastic players. I, I have to say, I think they have more talent than Marseille. Sorry to Marseille. But it's going to be difficult, especially in a stadium with now supporters we're hearing and Musa Marika. It'll be difficult, but just some some positives from what I can see so far. And on SAR, uh, as a Chelsea fan, additionally to Olympiacos, I usually try my best to keep tabs on all the lone players, although there are a lot of them. But SAR made his debut for Porto, I think starting at right back is what I saw against Manchester City. He is mostly a natural center back, but he can actually play, I think, all around the back line. He was subbed off against City, and then he appeared for Porto against Vicente, a game that they won 1-0. And that was just a late appearance for him, uh, about 10 minutes, as they were trying to protect that one goal lead. Um, so I think he came on for an attacker or a midfielder, and they went to a five-man back line just to protect that game, as far as I can see. But he's an interesting young player. I hope he has a horrible game against Olympiacos, uh, <laughs> even though, obviously, as a Chelsea fan, I'm hoping for his development in the future. He is beginning to feature, but Lambro, you make a very, very good point. This is a team with a lot of pieces that are being pulled together, sort of like Olympiacos as well, to be fair. But it's nice to see that they might be having those issues and running into teams in Europe is obviously a new challenge that is just as new to them as it is to us. One, one thing that I will say is that the fact that the, uh, the Pauk fixture this week was postponed because of the conflict of uh, the scheduling conflict, mm -hmm. uh, I think that, that somewhat works in our favor in the sense that uh, you're going to have the guys like uh, the Mvilas, the Buchalakis that, that ran those 11 kilometers that are going to get that extra breathing and, and that rest, uh, seeing how the game is six days apart from, uh, from the Marseille game. Yeah, and they're going to need it, Rafinha especially, because Rafinha is probably going to be going up against Luis Diaz. Luis Diaz plays left wing for Porto, and he scares me. If anybody watched the, the Porto-Man City game, the goal that Porto got was literally a solo effort from Luis Diaz. He dribbled down the left side, across the middle, around like three or four defenders, takes the shot and scores. That was a solo effort by him uh, against Manchester City, which has spent, I think, half a billion british pounds on that defense so that yep. is a good defense that he literally did that himself and just to give you an idea in his four games the four games he's played so far this year two key passes three shot assists uh so he's he's a creator and he's averaging almost five progressive runs per game on a counter they like to get him the ball he really is good at taking space i mean he is a really scary player and rafinha is going to have his hands full yeah, and if this Luis Diaz, Colombian international, doesn't do it for them, they can bring on Felipe Anderson, Brazilian international, who spent a lot of time at Lazio and played in West Ham. You know, it's difficult. We talked about Thalvin giving Jose Jolebas trouble. Well, when an unfit Thalvin comes off in the 60th minute and Radoncic, who we were actually linked to, the Serbian winger for Marseille, comes on, you're not getting a walk in the park. You're getting a world-class player in my book. And Philippe Anderson was top player at Lazio. West Ham is a club in shambles. Makes sense. He didn't have a great run there. Him coming on, Marco Grujic coming on, 
former Pauk player Sergio Oliveira and players who are actually gunning and have ambition, you know, I think I think we we touched upon this a little bit about Marseille. There's some complacency, I think, with Thalvin coming home, Paye coming home. They're just happy to be back in the club in Marseille. These players at Porto are gunning for the title every year, and they're gunning for big moves to the Premier League, to the Bundesliga. These are really talented kids and top players, along with experienced players like Pepe and Felipe Anderson, like and Sergio Oliveira. It's it's a completely different task and away from home with supporters. It's tough. If we if we get anything out of this, I'd be surprised. It's going to be really tough. Yeah, and I mean, we've been talking about really the offense of Porto and how dangerous it is, but they have a pretty solid defense too. Right now, this season so far, they're only allowing their opponents 16% in terms of positional attack efficiency. So that means quite literally opponents, when they are possessing the ball, uh, not on counters, by the way, they're possessing the ball, getting to the offensive third. They only get shots off 16% of the time. We talked about how, when Larissa is the second worst in the Greek Super League with a 16% positional attack of efficiency, that's really good for this defense. They do not allow much. You know, even against Marseille, ours wasn't amazing. And we saw how the chances that were more or less at a premium. But we do have an opportunity here because Porto is very vulnerable on the counter. They might be really good at defending positional attacks and, and stacking the defense, parking the bus a little bit. But they get sucked in pretty easily, and they're very vulnerable on this counter. They're allowing shots on 47.1% of opponents' counters. But there is important context to this. They only allow about two to three counters a game. So even though they're very vulnerable on it, they're usually pretty good at preventing it. So the opportunity here is on the counter. This is the vulnerability. It's just the question of, are we going to get those counters? Yeah, it's going to be a tough task for sure. Uh, just real quick before we wrap up, I think it would be a good idea as we've done to go around and I'm going to say what I want the lineup to be or maybe what I think the lineup will be or some combination of that. And then also a prediction of the scoreline, maybe a hot take thrown in there. I'll, I don't want to see too much of a deviation from the Marseille game just because of how successful we were. So sign goal, Holebas, Ba, Semedo, Rafinha now. Can Holebas replicate what he did against Marseille, against Porto? I don't know. And I have a bit of a concern for Rafinha as well. But we've got Vinagre, who made his Olympiacos debut for like two minutes against Marseille. And we've got Mohamed Drager on the right. I am not opposed, especially in Europe. We've got five substitutions. I am not opposed with a very early change for either of those fullbacks if they're not playing well. I'm like, I'm talking halftime, just swap them both out or something. It's going to depend. They're going to have a really tough task. But I want to see them start just in case they do come in and have a good performance again. In the midfield, Envia and Buharakis does well for me. And I think in attack, we probably have to stick with that attacking four with Lazar, Masuras, Valbuena, and El Arabi. I mean, that's just because I'm not expecting Bruma to start. He hasn't featured for us. I don't think he's even been in a squad for us. But... I wouldn't be opposed to seeing him off the bench. We've also got Pepe Rodriguez, uh, who's an interesting player that we could see as well. We've got Maxi Oliveira, who I don't even, I'm not even sure he was on the bench for the Marseille game, but we saw what he did against Atromitos. Could see him there as well. I think they've got options off the bench, but I don't want to see the starting lineup take too much of a deviation. My prediction for this game, just real quick, I'm going to say 2-1 to Porto. 
unfortunately. I think Theo made a good point that Porto will have some fans in the stands, and that's the first time we've seen that. That might affect things. We've talked about how good of a team Porto are. It might just be a little bit too much to handle on the road for Olympiacos, but I'm not going to count us out to maybe flip that result when Porto come to Greece. Uh, Peter, while you're at it, because uh, technically we're not recording until Thursday with uh, Antonio's from LS Football. So you might as well do hot takes for the Europa League games. Ike is playing Leicester and Balk is playing Grenada. So you might as well give your hot takes for those two. Well, well, well. Uh, my hot take for Ike against uh, a big, big side in England. I don't have a hot take. I think they're going to lose by a pretty handy amount of goals. I think some maybe some Leicester Academy players will come in and, and get some goals against Ike. I think the the only good side is that when these big English teams play teams like Ike, they come in and rest a lot of their good players. So maybe Ike can catch them off guard, but I'm not really hopeful. And then Pauk going up against a Spanish team. It's also not looking great for me. I really want to see Pauk win, but I think it's two losses there for Ike and Pauk. What are the score lines? Score lines. I'll say 4-1 Leicester and uh, 2-0 Grenada. Theo, what do you got? Well, look, again, for the starting 11, I think, uh, Peter, you hit the nail on the head when you said how much could he really deviate from the victory he just got and to include guys that haven't really played much uh, to start the season. So I think this is probably going to be a very similar, or probably the same starting 11 that's going to start off in Porto. Um, you know, I think Vinagre will get some some playing time. I think Broom is going to get some playing time, all depending, of course, how the game uh, how the game goes. Uh, call me crazy, guys. I, I see a 1-1 tie. And I think for some reason we're going to open up the scoring there. Hope we do. If we get that point, I think it's big. Uh, when it comes to Ike and Pauk, uh, I see a couple of 2-0 uh, losses. You know, Ike really didn't look good over on Thursday. Pauk looked a bit better in the second half against Omonia, but uh, definitely not enough, in my opinion, to be able to go and win in Granada. Okay, I'll give my starting 11s. I think it's going to be the same. One idea I may have would be even dropping one of the wingers and including Vinagre. I don't know. I, I don't know how great an idea is, that is. But one thing I'll comment on is Sudani coming off the bench if we need a goal. I think that is something I want to see. I want to see Sudani play if we need a goal or if he wants to come on. Bruma as well. Is Sudani in our European squad? Yeah, he was on the bench okay. actually okay. for Marseille. So. If he's fit, if he's ready, he has a knack for the goals. I'd love to see him come on if we need one. Same with Bruma. I'm actually going to go 1-1, but I will say Porto will score first. We'll bring on some Ligans, and I think if Sudani comes on, he will score. Um, for the Pauk and Ike games, Pauk, what a disgrace. Just what a disgrace of a football club. What a joke. Just how, 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 how can you drop points to Ammonia? And one, how do you start Leo Matos, who you drop and cut from your team the next day? It's just shocking. It's just shocking. I've said it before. The club is run poorly, and it's a joke. They're going to eat three goals and not score against Granada. For Ike, I see them losing 3-1. Again, didn't play well. It's sad, but yeah, that's how I see it. Without fans especially, it's going to be tough. Not to butt in, guys, but just, you know, with Pauk and, you know, we all heard over the qualification period with Ammonia, you know, how we always get these easy squads and how we always get these easy qualification opponents. 
And I think it really puts things into perspective uh, when you see what Pauk has done the last few years in Europe where they've really they've laid a potato. And uh, it's not easy to, to be able to handle uh, games midweek and games on the weekend and continue going for the championship while having your goals in Europe. It's not easy at all. And I think Olympiacos has been the only team that's been able to really handle that. And whether it's the pressure or whether it's the quality and the depth of the roster and the bench that we have, nobody else has been able to come close to handling and juggling uh, both those uh, those goals. Yeah, 100%. I also think we're going to see probably the same exact lineup. You know, Martins likes to go with what works. And the 4-4-2 worked against Marseille. The, the task isn't getting easier, so we need the workhorses in the midfield. We need to cover the width because the wingers are dangerous. They're going to push the wings. We're probably going to go with the same 4-4-2. Now, whether or not it's Valbuena uh, up top or, you know, and El Arabi, or maybe he mixes that up, uh, I think it's probably going to be the same. Now, as far as my score lines, just to be different, because I don't think – I still – even though Porto is a better offensive team, I don't really think it's going to be high-scoring – you know what? I'll make it a hot take. Uh, I'm going 2-1 Olympiacos. I'm going to be the positive one this time just to change it up. Yeah, and just now on Twitter, there's a conversation going on between Olympiacos EU, Steven, and Olympiacos Argentina. And some points they just brought up. The motivation our Portuguese players are going to have and Pedro Martins are going to have for this game. This is the dream for Pedro Martins, going to Portugal and showing that country the team he has made, the football he has created in Greece, I bet you he's been looking forward to play a Portuguese team forever. And these Portuguese kids, Samedo, Sa, Pepe, if he plays Vanagre, if they get on the pitch, this is their chance. Fernando Santos will be watching this game, I bet you 100%. They're going to give their everything to win this game. Just just a thought. That great points by them. Just saw it on Twitter great as we're wrapping up. Jose Sa, former Porto player, don't forget that. So he'll have that motivation. And I totally agree with you, especially Martins, a guy who managed a lot of smaller sides in Portugal and, and really has had his fair share of going up against these big teams and probably not having things go his way. You know, obviously when you're managing a team, like I think Maritimo is one that he managed, Rio Ave maybe? I, I can't remember the names, but managing these smaller sides in Portugal, he's gone up against Porto a fair share of times. This is his chance to, to go back and get that win, to get that big result that he probably wishes he could have got more of when he was in Portugal. Yeah, uh, and then for the other two games, uh, yeah, no, I mean, this Grenada is dangerous. They're probably the best team in that group. Uh, I'm going to go, you know, I th maybe, maybe Cholak gets his first goal. Uh, I'll go 3-1 Grenada. And then Leicester. Hmm. Smoes will be back for Ike. So it's a little bit more positive, but Leicester still has way better quality. Um, I tell you what. Ugly one nothing win for Ike. Wow. Oh. Big yeah, take. I'm gonna go, I'm gonna go more aggressive. You know, I was right. I was right on one of the games, and I was the closest to being right on the other one. So I'm going to stand out a little bit from the crowd this week, see if uh, I can get my Nostradamus on for these games. Yeah, I was going to mention that Adi got closer than any of us uh, as far as the score lines for last week's fixtures. So keep an eye on what he says. Maybe I'm not going to advocate for gambling. I don't do that type of stuff. But 
the man knows what he's talking about is all I'm going to say. I do look at the data. I spend all my time looking at the data. So <laughs> and I also, guess I need, might be cheating. I, I need to give a shout out to Michael Vassini putting in the good comments about the other football teams in Greece while I was gone. So shout out to him. He did a fantastic job making great predictions about both Pauk and some other teams in the league. Good work, Michael, if you're listening. Well, there we go. I think that's about it, uh, unless people have any final comments. But I know it's a long one today. Uh, we had a whole lot of stuff to cover, and we have a great guest. So we wanted to make sure that we really went through everything and gave you all some great content for the team. Theo, thank you so much for spending some time with us. We really appreciate it. It was great having your analysis and insight on the podcast. While you're here, we want to give you the opportunity to plug or promote anything that you're working on. And if you want to tell us where we can follow you on social media, where you're writing, give us any updates. Now is the time. Oh, look, guys, thanks for having me. First and foremost, that you guys are doing a fantastic job. I love listening to you guys. Um, you can follow me at uh, The Boris, so T-H-E-B-O-U-R-A-S, and uh, for Agona Sport as well. And I have a couple of projects coming up uh, soon enough, so I'll have that on social media. But uh, for you guys, keep the good work, the great work, I should say. Uh, it's been a lot of fun. Thank you so much, Theo. We uh, will continue to try putting out good content, and we will certainly be paying attention to your writing as that comes out. Uh, one more thing that we do want to pay attention to, we want to thank all the listeners for listening, especially if you've made it this far. And as your reward for making it this far listening, we have some information on our special guest. Adi, what do you have for us as our next hint? So guys, we already told you the special guest is a former Libyakos player and he is also Greek. So we're going to give you another hint. Maybe you can guess who it is. His coach, one of his coaches, I should say, was Dusan Bajevic. So that doesn't really narrow it down too much, but <laughs> have fun. <laughs> and uh, we'll, I'm looking forward to seeing what people come up with. We've gotten some hilarious guesses so far. Uh, so, yes. And we are going to be dropping more hints, obviously. Now, I believe on the midweek series episode, since it's debuting on, it'll technically debut on a Friday, That's we correct. will actually be releasing who it is. Yep. on Friday, but we're going to tease more hints every day. And the reason why we want people to know before, we obviously want to build up the hype, but you know, if folks have questions that we think are interesting uh, for this player, as soon as it comes out who they are, uh, we'll be more than happy to ask them on the podcast. That's an episode that we are really excited to have going, and we will definitely provide more information for you. So big, big stuff going on. I know someone on Twitter posted a GIF or an image of Mitro Gru. Uh, on our tweet <laughs> and i know lambro probably would do anything to get that interview going um but one day <laughs> i will say it is not mitrogu unfortunately one day as you said lambro we can get him on absolute legend for the club and uh would be would be very cool but that is all we have for you today theo thank you again once more and uh if there's ever an opportunity we'd love to have you on again Thank you all for listening. We'll be back. Sorry for the slightly longer break for Friday, but it'll be worth it as we'll have a very interesting podcast about Panathinaikos. And next weekend, massive, massive guest. Stay tuned and thank you so much. Have a nice day.